Um, Father, please let us be people that listen eagerly to your word. We thank you for the wonderful thing it was to hear it spoken just then and read to us. Father, please help us to understand it in particular, to understand what it means for us now as we seek to live for Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how's this for a quote from back in my childhood? By 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. That was a quote in an election campaign by Bob Hawke in 1987. He was kind of saying, you vote for me and in three years' time, not an Australian child will be living in poverty. Well, it turns out that at the end of those three years, it was quite surprising because there were still children living in poverty. In fact, last year, there were 761,000 Australian children living below the poverty line. So Bob couldn't quite pull it off. Um, there was another one. How about this one? Mission accomplished. It was on this big, massive banner on an aircraft carrier behind George W. Bush as he spoke after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein on May the 1st, 2003. More Americans died in Iraq after that date than before it. And of course, perhaps the most famous too soon boast would have to be Neville Chamberlain's Peace for Our Time, as he waves that piece of paper. A sound bite from September 30th, 1938, after his Munich agreement with Hitler who declared war on Poland within 12 months. And World War II was the rest of the story. See, the problem is that sometimes reality gets in the way of our triumphs. And history's judgment on those three bold declarations that I just gave to you then is not one that you could just say, well, that's easy to say with hindsight. No, people said it at the time. Even though many people cheered and said, yeah, yeah, that's great... Each of those statements was recognised at the time as being naive to being the, at the point of being foolish. Triumphalism never works. Reality is always going to get in the way. And in particular, the reality of human nature and our brokenness. Wisdom, you see, lives in light of reality, not in spite of reality. Now, today's passage confronts us with a staggering regression on behalf of Israel, mere weeks after the greatest moment of their history as a nation. Celebration turns to devastation in the blink of an eye. The very presence of God amongst them is placed in jeopardy. And it raises a critical question that is just as real for us as it was for Israel back then. And that is this... How can God's people enjoy his presence with them when the reality of our sin keeps getting in the way? How can God's people enjoy his presence with them when the reality of our sin keeps getting in the way? But before we get to chapter 32, I want us to note a few things from a little earlier, from back in chapter 24, in, that will help set the scene for where we're at. So after appearing at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments in chapters 19 and 20, God spells out His covenant and that's what Mike was teaching us last week. So by the end of chapter 24, what we find is that God has set the terms of the covenant, they've got it in writing, the people have heard it, spelled out every word of it to them twice, they've agreed to it twice with these words, 
What Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will obey. They said it twice, having said it once before the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in the first place. So that's three times all up. And then this big holy covenant between God and the people of Israel and it is formally sealed where the blood of a sacrifice is sprinkled on all the people. And then what God does is He summons Moses and Aaron and two of Aaron's sons and 70 of the Israelite elders up the mountain. And you've got to remember from back in the, the, the Ten Commandments one, that no one was able to touch even the bottom of the mountain, right? Even if your goat touched the bottom of the mountain, you stone it to death. And now God is saying, I want you all to come all the way up. And look at what we read in verse 10 on the screen. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement, made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. I mean, how amazing is that after that dramatic scene when the Lord descended on Sinai in chapters 19 and 20? I mean, surely it just doesn't get more special than this. I mean, happy days, right? 70 elders of Israel, and that's a number chosen for its symbolic perfection. The leaders of Israel are able to feast in the presence of God Himself, for they have made a covenant together and they have been sanctified by blood. Well, after that, Moses, with his young assistant, a guy called Joshua, you might have heard of him, he's summoned by God to come further up the mountain to receive laws for Israel's instruction that God Himself has written on stone. And so, in chapters 25 to 31, we read of God's presenting to Moses all the laws that relate to the building of the tabernacle, the establishment of the priesthood, um, the setting up of the system of sacrifices that's going to enable God's continued presence amongst His people the next day, the week after that, the months after that, all the way through into the promised land and even in it. But crucially, when you look at those laws, they're all focused in on a golden box that's placed in the holiest place in the tabernacle. A box that is to contain the covenant that God has just made with Israel. The thing though is what we often forget about the Ark of the Covenant is that it's more than just a pretty gold box. It's a throne. It's a throne. So the wings of the angels that's at the top of the box meet in the middle and form a seat and is described throughout the Bible as the mercy seat. It is where the king sits to give mercy. And so as God goes before his people into the land of the promise, his presence among them is going to be shown not by a statue being paraded, but by a king's tent, a royal tent that's got a throne in the middle of it and in the middle of the throne is the word of that king's law. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, for a reason, because I want you to remember these details as we see what Israel does next. Because the last instruction Moses gives him back in chapter 24, before he and Joshua went up into the fiery cloud that covered the mountain was this. He said, this Moses said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Moses is kind of saying, I'm going to be away for a bit. 
go to Aaron, he's your guy. You go, well, fair enough. Aaron should be able to handle that. What on earth could go wrong? Well, 40 days later, with Moses still up the mountain, and despite all that they'd seen, and all that they'd heard, and all of the things they said they would do, what goes wrong? Chapter 32 is what goes wrong. Let's have a look at verse 1 of it. When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. I mean, that's stunning, isn't it? This, what a difference 40 days make. They just sealed this covenant in the presence of God 40 days ago and now they're saying, oh, go make some gods for us, Aaron. So it's quite clear from this that Aaron and the elders had clearly given up waiting on the mountain for Moses, as they'd been told to do, and have returned to the camp. And it's almost certainly will have been some of those very elders that had seen God, who had seen the Lord, that then go and corner Aaron and in direct violation of the first commandment, tell him to make gods that will go before us. They're impatient to get going and who knows what's happened to this Moses guy, right? But I want you to look more closely at how they describe Moses. Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt. But how, how was it that God began the Ten Commandments? Do you remember? I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt. And so all of that, what Yahweh has said, we will do, we will obey business, they have clearly forgotten that. In fact, it seems that they've forgotten Yahweh entirely. We've got to see how serious a rebellion this is. It, it is breathtaking. And so surely you're going to think Aaron, right? Aaron stood at Moses' side all the way through all of that stuff that happened in Egypt. As he inflicted all those plagues of Egypt, Aaron was there. Well, surely he's going to set them to rights and tell them to pull their head in. No. Now, we're told that they're gathered around Aaron, and I doubt this demand was made as a polite suggestion. Hey, what if we did some God things? No, I think the sense is that they were kind of going, do it, Aaron. And Israel had form in this regard, right? It's not as if this is the first time that they've complained or that they've tried to pressure Moses and Aaron. And even the first time that they've not been afraid for their lives, actually. Back in Egypt, they felt that way. But even then, you would not think that Aaron would capitulate so quickly as he does and so thoroughly. In fact, he complies with their demand to a disturbing degree of thoroughness. Now, you heard it read to us earlier, but he sets them to work. He says, all right, we'll go collect gold earrings and he specifies which family members you need to collect it from and then tells them to bring it to him and he gets to work and as verse 4 reveals, he's very diligent at this. Now, I want to give you a word-for-word -word translation of the Hebrew here because I want you to hear the emphasis that comes through that the writer of Exodus is trying to say, can you see what Aaron's doing? It says this, and he took from their hand and he fashioned it with the engraving tool. And he made it a calf, a molten image. It's like he's going, he made it. What? What did he make? What did he make? This. Can you believe he just did it? Now, I want you to fix that in your mind for later on when Aaron tells Moses his version of what happened, right? Well, the people are quite happy with Aaron's work. 
and the product they commissioned. And so they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And any last excuses that you were prepared to make on behalf of Aaron should disappear when you read verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He makes the calf, he then builds the altar and then he announces the festival. It is completely against what Yahweh had instructed, that Aaron had heard Yahweh instruct, but he attaches Yahweh's name to it anyway. And there goes commandment number three. And in a perverse repetition of the celebration of the sealing of the covenant from just over a month ago that we looked at in chapter 24, what do you read in verse 6? The people rose early, Moses had rose early, they sacrificed burnt offerings, Moses had sacrificed burnt offerings and afterward they sat down and eat and drink just like the rest of the elders did when they came into the presence of God and then they get up to indulge in revelry. The, the word's literally to play. I think the sense is this, this classic pagan festival of dancing and the descent of all of that happens after your deaths, right? Um, but anyway, it's stunning in its offensiveness, it's horrendous. This wasn't just a rebellion, this is a complete obliteration of the first three commandments. It's as if they'd never been spoken, as if they'd never heard God's voice, as if everything that they had seen of Yahweh and His power, their trembling at His voice that they'd done just a while before has then vaporised in this puff of idiotic, people-pleasing, spiritual short-sightedness. Well, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, don't poke the bear. What do they think Yahweh's going to do? This lot were in Egypt. What did Yahweh do then when Pharaoh said, I'm going to ignore what you've got to say? They were all there. What's he going to do now? They not only ignored his commands, they also forgot the warning that accompanied the very commanders in the middle of what they've done, the making of a graven image. Um, look at verse um, 5 of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He goes on to say how amazingly generous and gracious he is for thousands of generations. But he say, you break this one on me and it's going to be a generational problem for you. I'm not going to laugh at it. This matters. All right, well, let's go back up the mountain and let's get our answer to our question, what's Yahweh going to do about it? Now, one thing that they should have known about the Lord is He doesn't miss anything. He sees exactly what's going on. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Now, those words from the Lord are, are ominous, right? Look what he says there. Your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, Moses. That's how the people had described themselves to Aaron. Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, remember that? And so now with this chilling kind of irony, the Lord's inclined to agree with them. It's like he's distancing, distancing himself from them, like he's, he's contemplating disowning them. Your people that you brought up, Moses. Verse 9, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, literally that I might end them. 
end them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. Like this is crisis, real crisis. This is infinitely more deadly than an emergency for Israel than Pharaoh's um, when he sent his troops to try and bring them back into slavery. This is way worse than this. And the plagues that he sent on Egypt are a mere scolding on Egypt in comparison to what Yahweh's talking about doing. Yahweh's threatening to end them completely, wipe them out, start again with Moses. And the question we've got to go is, well, do you blame him? Would he be unjust if he did just that? I mean, I have to think about all, all that he's done, right? After saving them from centuries of slavery, after fighting for them, after parting a sea for them, after feeding and refreshing them in the, in the desert and showing himself, revealing himself, even though he's God and they're his people, he shows himself to them. And to have those same people that you've done all of that for worship a golden cow that Aaron had kind of just carved up out of their earrings and then you honour it as your God and credit it for your salvation. I mean, that, that, is, that is beyond offensive. Israel absolutely deserved to be wiped out. They deserved his wrath. So, what I'm trying to say is, this is Israel on the cusp of annihilation. This is just super threatening. And then what happens? Moses steps in. And he pleads for his people. But no, they're not his people. And that is his big message to the Lord. Verse 11, why should your anger burn against your people? Verse 12, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Don't disown your people, is Moses' plea to the Lord. He even reminds Yahweh of his promises, his own promises that he'd made to Abraham, Isaac and not Jacob. He doesn't use the normal third name on it, Jacob, he uses Jacob's other name, Israel. Because he made a promise to Israel's descendants in verse 13, to whom you swore by your own self. He says, you can't, you've made that promise to Israel, you can't just wipe them out and restart it with me, because that would be breaking your promise to them and that would bring your own name down with them, because they are your people. And what's more, Moses argues that the Lord destroying his own people would actually have a, a worse impact on his name amongst the nations than the, than the rubbish that Israel was carrying on with. Because the Egyptians sitting back home, limping, licking their wounds, would be sitting there going, oh, I get what Yahweh was doing with those crummy Israelites. He just brought them out here to kill them. By the way, I want to I step aside for a moment and say, do you see why taking the Lord's name in vain, or as we looked at, remember in chapter 19, lifting up the Lord's name for emptiness. Why that matters so much? Because God's name is, still is, attached to His people. Because God in His grace has attached it to us, to them. It's because of His gracious promises, made on oath using His own name. He cannot abandon his people, no matter how much they bring shame to him, without denying his word. And for Yahweh to deny his word is to deny himself. Now, on one hand, that is just a beautiful promise, actually. 
that he will not forsake his people. He just will not. And that is a great comfort for us as we often reflect on our own waywardness. But boy, you don't take that for granted. It is precious that he gives you his name. Well, Moses is horrified at the prospect of such a thing happening. He says, you mustn't do that, God, you mustn't. And so he appeals to the Lord to be mindful of his own glory, which is precisely what the Lord wanted him to do. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that... You know, I mean, God was clearly angry enough to destroy Israel, but he didn't do it. What does he do instead? He tells his servant he's intending to do it. He tells his servant, who he is appointed to lead his people, that that is what he wants to do. And now he says, remember, now leave me alone so that my anger might burn. It's the divine equivalent of saying, hold me back, Moses. And Moses does. Lord, don't do it. And the Lord responds, not reluctantly, immediately. Moses says, relent, Lord, and the Lord relents. Like that's what he wanted to happen all the way along. And he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. He listened to Moses' intercession. And as Moses turns back to go down the mountain, it's like his turning is the turning of the story. He returns to Joshua, who, notice, is actually still faithfully waiting where he's meant to be, and Moses is carrying two stone tablets. Now, we need to sort of focus on this a little bit because the text does, right? So, while Aaron is down the mountain engraving with his own hand an idol to show the people that God was present with them, look, here's your God, the Lord is up the mountain also doing some engraving. He's engraving on his covenant on stone. And the, and the phrasing in the original language of verse 15 is emphatic. He says, and the tablets, they were the work of God. And the writing, the writing of God, his, engraved upon the tablets. Just as it was Aaron's work, this is God's work. And the pointer to God's presence with his people is not some mute, cow idol. It's the word of the living God, their king to them. Well, on their way down, Joshua thinks, what's going on? He hears all this stuff going on in the camp and he goes, oh, it's the sound of battle. Moses is going, no, it's not. It's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And you can hear the tension building. What's What's he going to see when he gets down the mountain, right? Well, when they get to the edge of the camp, we're told Moses saw, he looks. And now it's time for Moses' anger to burn. Look at verse 19, 20. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Uh, There's this flurry of almost violent action from Moses. He saw, he burned, he threw, he smashed, he took, he burned, he ground, he scattered and he made them drink it. Moses, the leader of God's people, interceded on their behalf when he was up the mountain and his pleading saved them from annihilation. But now Moses, the leader of God's people, sees what they're doing and he's disciplining them for their disobedience. 
disobedience. And you see the two things got smashed, right? And the symbolism of both of these is, is you know, devastating. By far the most terrifying is the smashing of the stone tablets, actually. The ones carved by the hand of the Lord. Because they had broken his laws as thoroughly as Moses had just smashed those tablets that are now lying in pieces at the bottom of the mountain. The word of God, his presence among his people, will not enter the camp as long as it's sharing space with an idol. And then Moses smashes the idol. The wrathful destruction, the crushing of the calf. And then making Israel drink the dregs is idolatry and idolaters getting what they deserve. But then Moses turns to his older brother. Let's have a look at verse 21. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Did they have a knife at your throat? Did they threaten your children? Were they holding your feet to the fire? What the heck, Aaron? Well, Aaron's attempt at justification is perhaps, I'm voting for it as the lamest on the history of lame excuses. And he really actually tries to absolve himself pretty much of all blame. Because he starts by sidling up to Moses and going, yeah, you know me, we, we know what they're like. You know how evil they are, Moses. These people are prone to this kind of thing. And when he tells Moses what the people did, he actually recites the events of verse 1 with word-for-word precision. But when he gets to his role, that's when he gives a very selective reading. Instead of the detailed instructions to the people of getting the gold rings from one of them and then another and another and then them dutifully returning with them and giving them to Aaron and following Aaron's instructions, it was literally, I said to them, who has gold? Tear it off, give it to me. It's as if he's angrily rebuking them for their horrendous request to make gods for them. And then no mention of him taking the gold and fashioning it with a tool and taking his time with it and carefully crafting the idol. At his retelling, it is, and I threw it in the fire. And kind of left a bit out there, Aaron. The selective editing makes it seem like he's doing the opposite of what he actually did. It's as if he's to say, he's saying to Moses, oh, this is what I did. He said, you know, there's going to be no idol making on my watch, you naughty people. Rip off your gold, give it to me, and I'm going to throw it into the fire and destroy it so you could never make idols with it, and I'm going to teach you a lesson. That's the tone of it. But then, you know, hey, in spite of all my best efforts to get rid of this horrible idol business, there was a miracle. This calf, it, it just kind of popped out of the fire. Yeah, right. And you know that Moses goes, now, I, I kind of got a picture of Garfield, you know, using one of those flat eyes kind of stares at him. Because there is no, no response from Moses whatsoever. There's no verbal response. He certainly doesn't say anything back. He doesn't say, oh, you sure it was like that? Tell me a bit more. No, silence. When his eyes tell him everything he needs to know. So just as he saw the calf, and proceeded to destroy it, now he goes, oh, is that the way it was, Aaron? And he looks at everybody else and what they're doing. And many of these people who still carry on, so despite Moses' arrival, despite this violent destruction of the idol that they've been worshipping, they still don't seem to have read the room. 
because they're still carrying on. Look at verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. No fooling of Moses and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So Aaron's failure, his weakness and the shameful consequence of it was on full view. You couldn't deny it, it was just there. And so now it's time for the leader of God's people to go, all right, Aaron, I'll do it. And he judges God's people. Verse 26, so he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And the Levites, all the Levites, came to rally to him. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. And the Levites do it. Um, There's a a Roman thing called decimation. So what that would mean if you had a a Roman legion that had shown cowardice or that that had had mutinied, it would be sentenced to decimation. And what that means is they would get them all to line up, the whole legion on parade, and they would get the leaders of that legion to walk along and one by one, uh, not one by one, one in every ten, they would smash them in the chest with a mallet and kill them as if to say, look at that, don't do this again. And, and that's a little bit of what's going on. So the description has kind of got them going back, it's going to go from one, to, to one end to the camp and then coming back and on both the way out and on the way in, it's kill who you can see. Disciplined by their own people. Thousands, they weren't all annihilated, but thousands lying dead at the hands of their own people because their own people needed to discipline them. It was devastating, it was tragic. But Moses knew how close it could have been to absolute annihilation. Israel needed to learn, Israel needed to take responsibility for one another and for their sin. Their whole future was at stake. Well, the next morning, after things have all died down, Moses lets the people know really how precarious their future is and so their sin is so great, he says, I'm going to have to go back up and I'm going to have to seek atonement for you or we're doomed. Moses says, I need to go back up and see what I can do and he intercedes for his people for a second time. Verse 31, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold but now please forgive their sin." But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. He now realises that the only hope for Israel is God's forgiveness. That's it. He's just got to forgive them. And if he won't forgive their sin, Moses says, well, take me with them. Just get rid of me too. I don't want to live. But this time the Lord's answer is both a yes and a no. So it's a yes, and he said, as he'd already promised, he won't destroy the nation. He will see them get to the land that he has promised them. But it's also a no. He says, no, I am not going to blot you out. I'm not going to eliminate the innocent. But I will judge the guilty. In my own time, I will hold those who sin to account for that sin. And in verse 35, we're told very briefly that the Lord struck the people with a plague. And it's the same word that's used of the plagues that he sent upon the Egyptians. And the reason is clear because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 33 leave us 
in this tense new state of affairs. The covenant celebrations of chapter 24 are long gone, right? And so the relationship between God and His people, it's on a knife edge. The Lord's committed to keeping His promise to bring the people to the land, but He is questioning whether He will go with them, whether He will be present with them when they get there. Look at verse 4 of chapter 33. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to give you, go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. And so the story finishes in the same way that it began, with the taking off of jewellery. But not in rebellious idolatry to make an idol, but in humble penance, penitence. Getting rid of all of your glamour because you don't deserve it. See, the story of the golden calf and its consequences has left Israel in a state of tension. What will God do with them because of their sin? Now, it's important for us as Christians to feel that tension as well. Because it is a real one that we will forget at our own peril. How can God's people, how can you and I enjoy God's presence when the reality of our sin keeps getting in the way? You sin, I take it. How can God be with you? Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been coming along here to church for a while, or you'll know that the answer that I'm going to give is Jesus. Right, you kind of worked that bit out. I know that. But I want you to feel the tension of the question anyway. Even though you know who the answer is, you've got to feel the tension. How can God's people enjoy His presence when the reality of our sin keeps getting in the way? This passage and the one that we're looking at next week, can I say, sit right in between two important bits in Exodus. God giving instructions on how to build the tabernacle and set up the priesthood and then the later chapters of Exodus where they actually build the same tabernacle and set it up precisely as the Lord had instructed. See, the reality is, is that God wouldn't rule His people from a reward you for your goodness seat but from a mercy seat that rested upon His promises to them. For God to dwell in the midst of His people, atonement needs to be made. And the whole sacrificial system would be the way that that would happen so that God could still be with them. So Israel survived the incident with the golden calf because they had an intercessor. They had one who went to God and called on God to show mercy to His people. One who went to God to make atonement for His people, to reconcile them. One who went to God and called on Him to remember His promises always to His people. And in the future life of Israel, this happened with the accompaniment of sacrifices day after day after day and year after year after year because God's people tend to sin day after day after day and year after year after year, even when they want to do better. But in addition, on one special day, once a year, that kind of intercession and atonement needed to happen for the whole people, for them just to be a nation and a people that has God amongst them. And that atonement needed to be made on all of them, the whole people, the whole camp, even the tabernacle itself. It was the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. That was all done to preserve God's presence with His people. 
And you know who would make atonement for all of those people? Who would walk into the presence of God and say, forgive them? It was the high priests, direct descendants of none other than Aaron. Yeah, that Aaron. Chapter 32 Aaron was the first one who went in and did the Day of Atonement stuff. Now, if that doesn't tell you about God's grace, I don't know what will. He led the whole debacle and how much does that show of God's grace to him that he would then be given the role to take their sin into the presence of God and ask for it to be forgiven? But it tells you something else. Doesn't it make you realise that we need an infinitely more superior and suitable intercessor than Aaron or his sons or Moses? One that could stand for his people without bearing the guilt of his own sin. And that is God, God himself, come among us, dwelling in our midst and dying for us. It's Jesus. As John would write, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, we've got an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. The first response that you've got to make, and this is in particular if you're here today and you do not know Jesus and you don't follow him, is, is you need one. You need an intercessor. You need someone to advocate for you because you sin. We all do. And you will face God in judgment for that. You need someone to go and say, forgive them, Let take away their sin. And that is Jesus. And he says, I want to be that for you. So if that is you now and you haven't committed your life to Jesus, please do it. Don't, don't go, oh yeah, I'll walk up to God when I see him and I'll have nothing to say. No, you want Jesus speaking for you, so please turn to him. But what about if you have? Um, as you reflect on the events that we look at today, I tell you, the, the first thing, when you're conscious that you are a sinner and you kind of sinned today and you're kind of going to do it tomorrow and you love Jesus to go, oh my goodness, how glad I am that Jesus did all this for me. You, you should be, it's thankfulness, isn't it? It's joy. Thankful that if you put your trust in Jesus, you've got an advocate, you've got someone who is pleading for you. One who dwells in the very throne room of heaven itself as a lamb who was slain and whoever lives and pleads for you. The word of God himself become flesh, whose wounds and whose resurrection stand as an eternal testament to the absolute sure promises of the gospel that your sin is taken away and that eternal life has been promised for you. And who by his Holy Spirit promises to be with you always until the very end of the age. That is a precious promise. Cling to it and rejoice in it. But the second thing this passage should do is, is what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us it should do. And that is warn us. Warn us and keep us humble. It should, it should keep us from taking the presence of God for granted. Like having the living God present with you is just a normal thing. Instead of being stunningly special. 
Whenever two or three people are gathered together in his name, God is there with them, is the promise of God. And I can count more than two or three people here tonight. God is present here right now by his Holy Spirit. That's not normal. That's amazing. Don't take it for granted. It's a holy privilege. And that humility must prevent us from the dangerous triumphalism that can sometimes creep into the people of God. Certainly did in Israel. But that triumphalism where we take our salvation for granted and forget that our Saviour is our Lord and Ruler and that we're to obey Him and that idolatry still matters and that it's not okay to live your life as if your money has saved you or your holidays are what you should be living for or, or because you're just lost in the eyes of the person across the, across the chair that you just think is gorgeous but no, they've got to take in place in front of God. What are you doing? Have you forgotten who you worship? It, that, that's, it, that's a triumphalism that sort of says, I've done it. It's mission accomplished. No, it wasn't mission accomplished by you. It was mission accomplished for you by someone else. And that's what you need every day. He is the one who died for you before and he is now the one that you need now and tomorrow and the next day and forever. That's what living by faith is. He's not going to leave you, but you still need him. You're not there on your own merits and you're never going to be. It's got to prevent... You know, we sit there stunned as Israel breaks command after command after command so soon after experiencing the Lord's salvation. I mean, I read Exodus 32 and I'm going, are these guys nuts? Are these guys crazy? Did you do that? I mean, how could they just ignore God's word knowing what they know about him? How could they just go and do the polar opposite of what they know God's told them to do and then expect God to be happy about it? How could they get Aaron to build a gold cow and still think that they were honouring the Lord who had told them precisely not to do that? I mean, who would ever do such a thing? Is this at all looking at the real world? Whoops. Uh, yeah, actually, I think I know what God's done for me and I know what He's said to me and I teach the Bible and I'm going to do, go against something that God wants for me to do tomorrow. Tomorrow! I'm preaching tonight. Um, maybe I should be a bit slower to sit there and throw stones at Israel. See, there is a reason that when we gather together, we regularly confess our sins together, because we should. We don't waltz up to God as if the atonement isn't what we need. <laughs> we need it. There is a reason that the most important thing that we do and that we should, every one of us, value most as the thing we do as a church is that we're reading the Word of God and we're learning from it. That, that's the centre of what we do. Otherwise, we'll forget and we'll just go do what Israel did and basically what we've done before as well, right? See, to proclaim the Word of God, that's what we've got to be in so that people can actually be saved by it. I mean, that's got to be our core concern. That's how God rules His people, that should be our concern for one another and that one another are doing and keeping the Word of God. We're responsible for each other. That's what churches are. And there's a reason why when Christians we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say it's important that we don't develop the habit of just plonking an amen on the end of our prayers, but that actually regularly and as a habit, it's not as if God won't hear it if you don't do this, but but regularly as a habit, 
explicitly reminding ourselves that we pray in the name of Jesus, right? Because it is only through him you get to call God Father. You don't get to start your prayer with Father if you're not doing it through Jesus the Son. It is only through him and his eternal intercession for you that you and I, sinners, can continually approach the throne of grace as boldly and as confidently as we are wonderfully blessed to do because he is continually interceding for us. So I'm going to pray to close and I'm going to base this prayer on Psalm 51. A guy called David in the Old Testament really messed up and this is what he prayed and I think it's a good prayer for all of us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. And then we will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Eternal Advocate. Amen. This next song is a reminder of the depths of